by way of introduction, I want to speak to you about Claudia. Okay? Now, some of you know, you could say that I even have a relationship with Claudia. Okay? We were dating for about six months at one time. And then that ended because we got engaged. And then that was about a month and a half ago. So for the last month and a half, we've been engaged. And in 97 days, we're going to be married. Now, on that day, our relationship is going to change significantly. We're going to make vows that we're with each other for the rest of our life. We've gotten engaged, which means we're saying that we're going to make those vows to be the rest of our life, but we haven't actually done that yet. Once we get married, you make those vows. It's a no change, no going back, a permanent kind of relationship. Her last name is going to change. She's no longer Miss Soto, but she's going to be Mrs. Herb. Her address is going to change. She's leaving her family and starting a family with me. Different things, things are going to look different in our relationship. That's why you prepare for marriage in the dating and engagement period. But here's the other thing, and here's the point that I want to make this morning. Not only when we get married will our relationship change, but also when we come together and become one, our relationship uh, with our families also changes. When her and I become one, her family becomes my family, and my family becomes her family. Meaning that my crazy aunt, I don't actually have a crazy aunt, but my crazy aunt is now her crazy aunt. Her crazy uncle is now my crazy uncle. She doesn't have a crazy uncle. But her sisters, she has two of them, are now my sisters. I didn't grow up with sisters. I don't know how to treat sisters. I I, I didn't grow up with it. It's totally different than what I grew up with. My brother is now her brother. She grew up with all sisters. She doesn't know what it's like to be a brother or to have a brother. His sarcasm... Her sar- his sarcasm catches her off guard sometimes because he's different than sisters. So also our parents, right? We started in our own family unit, but now her parents are also my parents. We get to care for them and honor them, and my parents are her parents. Our relationships change when we come together for marriage. The relationship with the families change when you come together in marriage. And in the same way, that marriage brings people together and changes the relationship with the family, when you come to know Christ and you become one with Christ, your relationship also changes, not just to Christ, but to his church, to his bride. So if you're someone here who has trusted in Christ for salvation, not only is your relationship with Christ different, but also your relationship with all the other people that are in his family is also different, radically different. Where we went from from strangers from across the country to now married, but you do that with every single believer in the body of Christ. If you know Christ, you are now a family member of every person across the globe for all time who also is in the family of Christ. So we're going to talk about this today. We're going to look at three ways the gospel changes your relationship with the church. We're going to look at three ways that the gospel changes your relationship with the church. If you have your Bibles, you can open up to Romans chapter 12. Go to Romans chapter 
12. Much of what we're going to be talking about this morning is in regards to spiritual gifts and the gifts that come from God. But there's a little more there. So we're going to read the passage from verse 3 down to verse 8. Romans 12, verses 3 down through verse 8. It says this, For through the grace given to me, I say to each one among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound thinking, as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. For just as we have many members in one body, and all the members do not have the same function, so we, who are many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. But having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, whether prophecy in agreement with the faith, or service in his serving, or he who teaches in his teaching, or he who exhorts in his exhortation, he who gives with generosity, he who leads with diligence, he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. Thus says the word of God. We're going to have three points here today. Point number one, which we're going to see at the beginning of this passage in verse three, is a change in humility. The gospel changes your relationship with the church because it gives you a change in humility. Look at verse three with me. It says this, for through the grace given to me, I say to each one among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound thinking, as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. It says, don't think too highly of yourself. It's a command you've probably heard, not just in the Bible, but your, your parents probably have told you this, or people in school, don't think too highly of yourself. Have a right view, a proper view of what you actually are. It's to be level-headed. Maybe you've, you've known people who are, uh, think too highly of themselves in a prideful way, uh, but it's, I, I think back to my younger years when I was in musicals and sports, I'd try out for a play, and there were some people that went in with high, high hopes, thinking they for sure were going to get the lead part. They thought their voice was tremendous. They thought their acting skills were impeccable, and they thought they were a shoe-in for the spot they wanted. They didn't get that spot, not because they got jipped out, but because they weren't actually that good. Their voice was mediocre. Their acting skills were okay at best, okay? They thought too highly of themselves. Or maybe you know a sports teammate that thinks he should be the star player on the team or thinks he should be getting starting time, but in practice every day, he doesn't play that well. He thinks too highly of himself. Well, we're talking in the context of church and gifts here, but he's saying don't think too highly of yourself. Think as you ought to think, with sound thinking, with right thinking. As God has allotted to each a measure of faith. But in service to the church, there will be some of you, there are some of you, who are extremely gifted. Pastor John is an extremely gifted teacher. For him to say, I'm an average teacher, is not true. That's not thinking too highly of himself. That's thinking too low, and it's not even true. He's an extremely gifted teacher. Some of you are extremely intelligent. You may be able to apply and get into like Ivy League schools. 
This sober thinking that he's saying here doesn't mean a fake humility where you're actually talking lower than you are. You will be good at things and praise God for that. But go back to verse 2, a little bit before the section we're talking about today. If you go back to verse 2, it says, And do not be conformed to the world, this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may approve what the will of God is, that which is good and pleasing and perfect. Right in the middle there, it says, Be transformed by a renewing of your mind. It starts with a change in thinking. Renewing your mind, letting the word shape the way you think. And if you go back to verse 1, working backwards here for a second, it says this, Therefore I exhort you, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a sacrifice, living, holy, and pleasing to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. If you know anything about the book of Romans, remember Pastor Josh preached through this a couple years ago, for those of you that were here, The first 11 chapters are all doctrine explaining salvation and what happened. And it's not very, it it, it is practical, but then Paul goes in verse 12 and he gets very practical explaining all the implications of those salvation doctrines. And he starts in verse 12. That's what the therefore is for, practical applications. He says, I exhort you, this is what is proper by the mercies of God. By the mercies of God. The mercies you've heard about all the way through this book. In chapter 1, when you hear that the gospel has now come. In chapter 3, when you hear that every one of us was born unrighteous and dead in sin. Yet Christ has come to save us. There's a way of salvation. In chapter 5, when you hear that you're justified by faith. You don't have to do something, but it's by faith. In chapter 6, verse 23. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. In chapter 8, verse 1, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. In chapter 9, 10, and 11, the election of God, those whom he's predestined, he's also called, those who he called, he's justified, those who he's justified, he will glorify to become the image of his son. He's saying, by the mercies of God, you've seen all of this, offer up your bodies as a sacrifice living and holy and pleasing to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. It's all live for his glory. He's given you and all your body and all your gifts, but it's based on the mercies of God. And it starts to change the way you think because you realize that all these gifts you may have, all the talents you may have, all the good things you may have are from the Lord. Even your faith is a gift from the Lord. Look at verse 3. At the very end of verse 3, it says, As God has allotted to each a measure of faith. And in verse 6, it says, To the grace given to us. We having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. All of the gifts you may have are from the Lord. And this is where the change in thinking needs to begin. Let me give you an illustration. I'll talk to you, but take it individually. If I gave you $10,000 right now, which to you is a lot of money, right? Maybe to your parents it's not as much, but to you, if I give you $10,000 as a gift, is it right for you to brag about your financial planning and your financial wisdom that you have this $10,000? No, it's a gift. The whole point of a gift is I give it to you, you receive it. Right? You receive a gift. You don't earn a gift, but these are gifts that you get from the Lord. So the humble person 
who has many gifts or talents, does not say, look at me, what I did to earn these things, but by the nature of a gift, you say, praise God that he's given this to me. Don't say, look at me, but look at him. Anything good you see in me is from above, from the Lord. You see in verse 3, there's a change in humility in the way you think about what God has given you. If you want to grow in humility, you need to understand that you are part of a body. And that brings us to point number two, verses four and five. A change in unity. Change in unity. The way you think about unity in the church. Verse four, it says this. For just as we have many members in one body, and all the members do not have the same function. In the start of verse 4, it goes from many members into one. Many, a big group of people, turns into one collective whole. Every person in this room, every person in this church is in the many. If you've trusted in Christ, you are part of the body. The staff, the students, your parents, your siblings, you are all a body. But you don't all have the same function, the end of verse 4 says. You don't play the same role. You each have an essential function. You're part of the body, but you each play a different role. Take your your right arm, okay? I want you to reach and touch up for the ceiling, okay? Bring it down. Start with your right arm. Just move your shoulder. Don't move your elbow, your wrist, or your fingers and reach for the ceiling. Right, You can lift up with your shoulder. Now do your elbow. Extend your elbow. Right? Now limp hand. Now do your wrist. Now do your fingers. Took four parts just for you to reach up and touch the ceiling. He's giving this as an illustration, a physical illustration, which is showing the spiritual reality of all the people in the church. For the church to function properly, you have many different parts of the body all working together. If the elbow goes a different direction, it doesn't matter what you do with your hand. It can't go up to the top. You're all to be working together. It's the picture of the body that he's giving. And if you were all the same and had the same function, you'd look like a fool just lifting up your shoulder all day long when nothing else works. You as believers each have a role to play in the body of the church. Go to verse 5. It says, So we who are many, the many of us, are one body in Christ. That last phrase, in Christ, we are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. But the in Christ part is talking about the only unity we have in the body is because we have trusted in Christ. This message, we're about to get to the gifts part. We're going to spend most of our time there. Most of this passage is about the gifts and how we use them. But what you have here is Paul addressing only believers. The start of verse, in verse 1 of chapter 12, he says, Therefore I exhort you, brothers. Brothers is a term for other believers, those who have trusted in Christ. You only experience these realities and blessings of being part of a body and having gifts if you are someone who has turned from your sin and trusted in Christ. If you have not done that, This next section is not for you. You don't have these gifts. You're not part of the body. The first step to becoming part of the body is trusting in Christ. And if you haven't done that, 
I'd urge you to do that. Turn from your sin. Trust in Christ today. But we continue on. For those of you who are believers, look at what it says. Your members, one of another. So we who are many are one body in Christ. And you would expect it to say something like, you're one body in Christ, and individually you're members of it, of the body. But it says members of one another. Okay? You're all connected to every other part of the body. Think of a physical body. You need every part to function properly. I, I was reading online about a guy who was, was thinking about getting a leg amputation. He had some kind of disease in his foot. And if he got that amp- amputation, is it possible for him to walk again? If you get some kind of prosthetic, right? But will he ever walk the same again? He's never going to walk the same. Individually, your members one of another, and you affect each other. If your bicep decides to stop working, you can't lift your hand. Forget about balking season, as the boys call it. You can't even lift your hand. Your bicep is here. You can't pull it up at all. If your bicep is torn, your arm is there. Every part of your body affects the rest. If your pinky finger decides it doesn't want to be here anymore, and it just wants to leave the body, you've got problems Every part is connected to each other. And what that looks like for you is that as you look around this room, to your left and to your right, those of you who have trusted in Christ, you are members one of another. You and your closest friend, and also you and the person across the room who you're kind of trying to avoid because you just don't like them. Or they've sinned against you, and you don't want to confront them. You also don't want to be near them or interact with them. All of us are members of one body, one of another. We're also connected in that we feel for one another. If something happens to one person, it happens to the whole group. If my thumb is pinched off or cut off, the whole body is in pain. Yes, it's here, but the whole body experiences the pain of it. In a similar way, that's why he says elsewhere that you should rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who who weep. It's what a body working together looks like as it works itself out. You get to point number three. Point number one was a change in humility. Point number two is a change of unity. And now point number three is a change in serving. A change in serving. Because you're connected as a body, you must also be committed to serving one another. Point number three is a change in serving. Because your relationship changes from how can I be served by other people to how can I serve others. That's the change in thinking. How can I be served by others to how can I serve other people? And thankfully, the Lord has equipped you to do this in very specific ways. We are going to go through a list together. These are spiritual gifts. If you look in verse six, it says, but having gifts that differ according to the grace given us. These are spiritual gifts from the Holy Spirit. The people who have these are Christians. The unbeliever may have talent and abilities, but it's not from the Spirit to build up the church. This is also not a comprehensive list. You'll see other lists that are somewhat similar, also in 1 Corinthians 12, Ephesians 4, and 1 Peter 4. 
I don't think they're meant to be a comprehensive list. We don't get that anywhere. They're giving illustrations of what it looks like for Christians who are equipped to build up the rest of the body. Some of you may know in what ways you're gifted, and others of you may not know. Some of you have tried a few of the gifts, and and you're realizing, I'm really good at fill in the blank, and you should keep doing that. And others are like, man, I just don't feel like I've tried any of this stuff. And it's meant here, especially as a young person, for you to experiment. What am I good at? How has the Lord gifted me? How has he equipped me for the good of others? And what do I enjoy doing? So let's look through here. There's about, uh, well, there's quite a few of them. Uh, Starting in verse 6, whether prophecy in agreement with the faith. So the first one is prophecy. Now, prophecy in that time is about foretelling the future. You're telling what's going to come. But now, after the New Testament has been completed, the word is complete, so you don't need the future told. We have everything that's needed for life and godliness. But it also contained an aspect of publicly proclaiming the truth, which is still something we can do today. And in 1 Corinthians 14, Uh, Three, it says, but the one who prophesies, same word, the one who prophesies speaks to men for edification, exhortation, and encouragement, for building up and encouraging others. Can you speak truth to others to build them up and encourage them? You don't need any platform to do this. You can just do this to those you know and love in the body. You can encourage, you can edify, and you can exhort them can proclaim the truth of God in all areas of life. It can be a one-on-one meeting, a small group at school. It can be with your friends. It also says in agreement with the faith. Prophecy in agreement with the faith. You don't get to choose what you speak truth about. The truth that you're speaking to them is found in the word. The faith is what has been handed down in the word. So the first one is prophecy. The second one now, in verse 7, it says or service in his serving, if you have the gift of service. Service is a broad term. It's helping others and helping the body in any way possible. This is probably the easiest one to have. You can serve in any way. could be rebuking or encouraging, but it could also be very practical, meaning you're willing to do whatever is necessary. We need nursery volunteers. I can do that. I'll go serve in that way. You need a ride here. You need a ride on Wednesday. It's going to take me 10 extra minutes and a little bit of extra gas, and I've been working. I got you. I got you. I can serve you in that way. I'll give you a ride. You need help with chairs. Do chairs need help stacked after the service? You can help with that. You can serve. Is there a new visitor? I'll welcome them. If I know there's a new person here that doesn't have a friend, I'll go be their friend. I'll go welcome them. I'll serve them. In that way, I heard about some uh, serving even yesterday, Angel and Megan Hernandez, right? They moved houses, and some of your staff went and helped them move. They were there all morning and some of the afternoon helping them move into their new house. How much skill do you need to help somebody move? You got two hands and two legs, like you can help them with that, right? You don't need all kinds of skill for serving, it's a willing heart is what you need. Are you willing to help serve others in any way possible? Where there's a need, put me there. I want to fill it. Next one in verse 7. He who teaches in his teaching. Now, teaching is 
a skill. Not everybody is able to teach, right? In, in elder qualifications, it talks about those who are elders must be able to teach, but it's communicating the word clearly and accurately. Can you make it understandable? When you talk about the word to other people, can you make it understandable? And can you make it faithful to what the word says? Is it accurate? Some of you may have this gift, and you can start seeing that as you talk to other people about the word. This doesn't have to be you go preach a sermon. It can just be, let's go talk about the word. Find a friend. Let's go read a chapter and talk about it. Let me study that beforehand and see what I can help explain to your friends, to unbelievers, to anyone who will listen. Some of you may be pastors one day. The way you find out if you have a gift of teaching is by practicing and just talking about the word and explaining the word and studying the word. The gift of teaching. In verse 8, it says the next one, or he who exhorts in his exhortation. Exhorting is different than encouraging. It's not just encouraging them along, although it could include that. Exhortation is calling people to obedience. It has a manner of encouraging, but it also has a manner of rebuking. Don't do that. You need to obey the word in this way. Now, what we don't need is a bunch of people going around yelling, you need to obey, you need to obey. What we need first is faithful Christians who are committed to live righteously. That you yourself, among your friend groups, in your schools, at home, in your families, with your siblings, are committed to live righteously. And as you do that, you would also be committed to, as you see other believers living with you, that you encourage them, exhort them, rebuke them to live righteously too. To not ignore the commands of God, but to pay heed to them. And you would encourage them in that way. It is not faithful of you to stand by and watch as your friends make crude jokes. It is not exhorting them to righteousness, that your Christian friends are there doing something they should not do. Yes, you shouldn't participate in it, and you yourself should abstain, but it also, if you're, with un, if you're with other believers, you are called to exhort them and encourage them along to obey Christ and his word. Exhortation. He goes on. He says, he who gives with generosity. So the rich people should give more money, right? The rich people should go give more money. It does not say that. It says nothing about how much you have. This has nothing to do with how rich you are. It has nothing to do with your income, your savings, or your family inheritance. It has everything to do with your heart posture. Do you understand that what you have is from the Lord, and do you desire to use what you have to bless others and to further his kingdom? It's not asking how much of this of what I own can I keep for myself. It's rather asking how much of this can I live on and still give to Christ's work in his kingdom. You're asking how much can I give, not how much can I keep. That is the heart posture. Some people are blessed with the desire more than most to really give of what they have to the good of Christ's kingdom. And if that's you, give with generosity. He continues on, he says, and he who leads with diligence, with diligence or with zeal. Whatever you are leading in a church setting, do it with 
zeal. Do it strongly. Do it to your best. Do it with diligence. Do it faithfully. If you're leading a group of friends, if you're the core guy in the friend group and you lead them, lead them diligently in righteousness. If you're leading a ministry team, if you're leading the band or the welcome table or the AV in the back or, or you're helping set up chairs, do it diligently. Do it with zeal. Make it so that other people want to join in and follow. You're not doing it, oh, I got to do it again. There's not chairs there. No. If you, are, if you are leading, do it well, do it with zeal so that others would be inspired to follow you and get the job done. You want to be a leader? Lead with zeal, lead with diligence. He goes on, he says, he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. Mercy is an interesting one because it doesn't necessarily mean that you're in the position of judge and you're showing mercy to someone who's guilty, but it means that you're comforting and helping those who are going through a tough or tragic time. Some of you are especially gifted in this, that when other people hear tragic news, maybe a grandparent died, maybe a parent died, something tragic, that you are one who can go there and be a source of mercy and comfort and encouragement in the toughest of times. Some of us are not as gifted at this and really struggle, what do I say, what do I do? Others of you are very good at this and should be quick to do that and do it with cheerfulness. Go be present during those times. They can be big things or small things, a small discouragement. You are especially good at coming alongside, showing empathy, and lifting up a brother or sister. This concludes the list here given in Romans chapter 12. There's other lists, as I said, in, in uh, 1 Corinthians 12, Ephesians 4, and 1 Peter Four, But as we, we think about this, think about all these different gifts, and you may have some of them, or, or you may be extremely gifted in one, or you may have skills in multiple, I'd encourage you to do it. Do whatever you're gifted at to the best of your ability, especially that of service. You're serving the body of Christ. You're loving the body of Christ like this. Do you want to become like Christ, even as a young person? Serve others. For Christ himself came to serve, not to be served, and to give his life as a ransom for many. You want to be like your Savior? You want to become like the image of Christ? Serve others and give your life serving for others. As I was thinking about this passage, there's a couple random points of application that I think are especially helpful for you guys today. I just want to list three of them. One you're not too young to start serving. Invest your life in the church. Whatever you're good at or have interest in or have a skill in, go give yourself wholeheartedly to that work. Your your service is indispensable. If you don't serve, the body suffers. Use your gifts. You are not too young. Two, some of you here are seniors. Okay, the seniors here pay attention or those who maybe are moving If you are going to a new church, the best way to get involved at that church is not to attend and wait for someone to just reach out to you and serve you. The best way for you to get involved at a new church, if you're moving for college or you're just moving with your family, is to go and invest your skills and serve that church well. If you see a need, go meet it. If you see they need help in nursery, 
one of you young ladies has a skill in that, go do that. If they need help with the college ministry and the young adults, go be a faithful member there. Go see how you can serve and contribute to the ministry. The third point, the church will stand forever. In Matthew 16, 18, it says, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. The point is that the church is the thing most worth investing in. Every other institution on earth may fail. Your job that you invest so much in, at some point that company may go down. Even universities go down. The master's university is not promised to succeed for all time. The church is. The church says, or Jesus says that he will build his church. The gates of Hades will not overpower it. The church is going to stand forever. You can give your life in service to the people of the church. As we conclude, we've just seen three ways the gospel changes your relationship with the church. It should change it for greater humility, greater unity, and greater service. My prayer today is that you've been encouraged to love others around you more. I want to close in 1 Peter 4. If you can flip there, we'll close with this verse. 1 Peter 4, verses 10 and 11. Take your Bibles, 1 Peter 4, verses 10 and 11. It's one of the passages that talks about gifts, but it also talks about the purpose of it. 1 Peter 4, 10 and 11. It says this, As each one has received a gift, employ it in serving one another, as good stewards of the manifold grace of God, whoever speaks as one speaking the oracles of God, whoever serves as one serving by the strength that God supplies. Why? Why do you invest yourself so heavily into the church? So that in all things God may be glorified through Christ Jesus, to whom belongs the glory and might forever and ever. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for your church and for the gifts that you have given the believers in this room. We pray that you would equip them and encourage them uh, to do their best in service of you and your church. And may our efforts to serve one another out of love show the world uh, the glories of Christ as they see our lives and give glory to you in heaven. We ask these things in your son's name. Amen.